open today with uh, some, some things that happened in history today. So 1940. 1940, uh, I don't know how many of you were alive then, but 1940 on today's date, uh, the, the, the hit When I Wish Upon a Star was uh, performed for the first time. Uh, today's date, 1945, U.S. troops liberated Manila from the Japanese. Uh, let's see, 1972, uh, Richard Nixon goes for the first time to the Great Wall of China trying to thaw relations. As you know, it didn't help all that much, but we did get some panda bears out of the deal, so that was pretty cool. Um, that was good. Uh, and then in 2008, uh, Fidel Castro resigned as president of Cuba. He had been president, loosely president, for many, many years. Uh, and then 1955, somebody famous, Steve Jobs, was born. So how many of you like looking back at stuff in history and, and going through some of that, and you're like, that's kind of weird, Phil. Well, what I want to let you know is all of those things I just told you are actually lies. None of that happened on today's date. It all actually happens tomorrow. So uh, you, would need a, you would need a time machine for that to happen, but, you're, uh, but all of that is lies. Now, as I was telling you, how many of you thought through the prospect that any of those were not actually accurate on today's date? None of you. You just took it hook, line, and sinker, partly because I was saying it. Now, one thing I really appreciate about that is it must mean that you think I'm fairly honest normally, right? Because uh, you're not just doubting everything I'm saying. Um, but we do that very often, don't we? We just kind of take, and we don't really even critically think through things. Uh, and this morning, as we look at 1 John chapter 2, we're going to kind of look at this idea. Um, because, friends, it is easy to believe lies. Some of you have done that over the years, right? There's all kinds of things that we have believed lies about. Uh, some of you as kids believed, I wanted to look around, believed there was a Santa Claus for a long time that brought you presents. How many of you were crushed when you realized that Santa Claus was not actually bringing you presents? All right, right? A couple of you were crushed and you realized, man, I had been lied to my whole life about this thing. And then you're like, what else are my parents lying to me about? Right? Lies are very easy to believe. And so this morning, kind of the idea we're going to look at is really we're going to see in this passage four realities um, uh, uh, of why we need to live in the truth or remain in the truth. Or maybe the word that's used is abide in the truth. It means live. Live in truth. Now, before we read the passage, I want to go just um, a little bit back. And, and like I said, we're in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. If you happen to have one of those Bibles in the back, it's page 592. Um, but over in 1 John 5, so just three chapters later, John kind of tells us maybe the main purpose of what he is writing. And he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, what word does he use there? know that you have eternal life that you may know so he's writing this book these five chapters so that the people he is writing to have every confidence that they have what eternal life now for many people they hear that and they're like well that sounds very arrogant phil <laughs> how can somebody know and that's what john has been going through and what we've been looking at, and what we will continue to look at. Because the reality is, for many people, when they die, where they go after death is what? It's a shot in the dark. And for many people, their hopes, their dreams, they kind of die in that graveyard. But God tells us, hey, that doesn't have to be. You can know. It's not a shot in the dark. You can know. 
So let's read 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 18 through 28. And then just kind of walk through them and look at four, like I said, four realities as to why it is crucial that we live in the truth. He says, children, and I'll actually explain this before I go any further. As we've looked through the book, does this mean he's writing to little kids? No. What did we see that this means a couple weeks ago? He's writing to everybody, but he is talking in kind of a very familial, uh, he loves them sense. Right? And so he's not just writing to little kids here. He's, this is how he refers to the whole church there. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who, ever, or no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide or remain, or live in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Let's pray real quick. Dear God, as we uh, open your word this morning, God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to it. Uh, God, help us to be men and women who are changed because of it. Help us not to... Um, help us not to just remain the same as we are confronted with you. God, I pray that... Um, you would uh, help me to be clear and that you would help your word to go forth. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you look at chapter 2, verse 18, first point we're going to have is live in truth, live in the truth because the end is, what word do you think is going to be next? Near. The end is near. What does John say? He says, children, it is the last hour. Now, when did John write this? He wrote this roughly 1900-ish years ago, 1920, whatever, 1930 years ago. You're like, well, John's really bad with his, uh, his, his framework of time, correct? So the way John uses this idea of last hour throughout his books, I'm going to go just one place that might help you to understand that. John chapter 4, verse 21, and you can gladly turn there if you want. John 4, 21 here Jesus is dealing with the Samaritan woman, or the woman at the well, as maybe we have heard her called before. And Jesus, just for a little bit of backstory, has been traveling through the region of Samaria, a place where Jews didn't go. He stops, there's this woman at the well, and he asks her to get him some water, which was something that also was taboo. She does, and then Jesus gets to the heart of the problem as to who she really is. And how, hey, she didn't actually have a relationship with God. And so um, this woman, right away in verse 19, 
um, says to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim is what the name of it is in Samaria. And, uh, but you say it's in Jerusalem is the place to worship. So what does she want to do right away? She wants to fight. Are the Samaritans right or are the Jews right? Where are you supposed to worship God? And what does Jesus say in verse 21? I think it's a very fascinating way he addresses this. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he goes on to talk about how, hey, you don't even know what you're worshiping. Uh, and about how he is really the Christ. He is the Messiah. But how does he use this idea of hour there? Is it in this hour? Is it the next 60 minutes? No, it's what? It's a period of time. It's a period of time. And reading through a bunch of stuff in, in church history, if you want to, you can actually look at how the church has understood kind of um, since Jesus left this idea of the last hour or last days being the time frame between when Jesus resurrected until he comes again. Bible says he's coming again. We don't know when, right? The reality is it could happen at any point in time. Hence, the end is near and we are living in the last days. Now, if I were to ask you the question, I'm not going to ask you this. How many of you believe Jesus could come back today? You're probably like, oh yeah, most people raise their hands. How many of you believe he will? And quite honestly, none of us are going to raise our hands because why? He's tarried for 1900 and whatever years. And that's where the Bible talks about the idea of, hey, when God, when Jesus comes back the second time, nobody's going to be prepared. Why? Because we get lulled to sleep. We get lulled to sleep. And so John is telling his people, he says what? Hey, it is the last hour. If you look over at verse 28, and what I think John is doing here, as we'll see, verse 18 at the beginning, verse 28, kind of bookend it. The second point, you kind of have um, uh, the next thing, and then verse 27, and then he kind of goes and, and, and does kind of like a, if you will, kind of a first, last, middle, middle section to kind of uh, reiterate these things to his readers. So when he says, children, it's the last hour, what does he say in verse 28? Abide in him. So when he appears, when is he appearing? At the last what? Hour. Good. When he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So I guess just one quick point of application is, hey, are we in the last days? Yes. Could Jesus wait another 1900 years to come? Yes. <laughs> right. Are you prepared? If it is today, are you going to be ashamed that you're like, ah, oh, I meant to do X, Y, or Z, but I never actually quite got around to it. You know, why not? Well, my, my reality TV show is really important to me or whatever else, right? So that idea, hey, are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Live in truth because the end is near. Look, Jesus is coming back. Just to illustrate that point, when I was a kid, my brothers and I liked to have some fun. So sometimes my parents would leave us alone, which as I've learned as a parent is never a good decision, <laughs> um, even though I do it with my kids sometimes because it's really nice. Well, one of my brothers and my favorite things to do when my parents were gone was to have water gun fights in the house. I've revealed this before, so it's not confession time, okay? We used to have water gun fights in the house, but we also had things with us. We had towels with us. Why? Because if we saw that car coming up the driveway, what do you think we started doing? Those walls were getting wiped down really, really fast. 
because we didn't know when mom or dad were coming. At that time, nobody had cell phones. There wasn't GPS to track where they were. It was they could come back whenever. Now, we knew we were doing something we weren't supposed to do, probably. So we had preparation, right? At least we prepared. Same idea. God's coming back. Are you prepared? All right, let's look down the next one. Point number two, live in truth. Let's read. Let me actually get here. I went back one more. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. So one of the ways that John knew that it was the last hour is because, second reality, live in truth because false teachers are coming and they are here. I'm going to ask you a question. You, don't, um, you can raise your hand on this one. This word that he uses here, Antichrist or Antichrists, I'm going to give you three options. Raise your hand if you think in the Bible it is used between two, because it's used twice here, two and nine times. Raise your hand if you think it's between two and nine. Raise your hand if you think it's between ten and twenty-nine. Okay? Raise your hand if you think it's thirty plus. Okay. I was shocked as I started doing this. The word Antichrist in the Bible is actually used five times. Yeah, I know, five, right? We have whole theologies built out of this word. Five times. In fact, it is used in this passage today three times. Two in this verse, once in verse 22. John uses the word, actually, and they're all used by John, just so you know as well. Um, over in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 7, or 4, verse 3, and then over in 2 John, chapter 7, or verse 7. It's not even used in the book of Revelation where we usually think of it. What is this idea of Antichrist? What does it actually mean? Well, the word, this is going to be trippy, okay? The word actually is anti-Christ. It means, what does anti mean? Against Christ. So John is referring to these people, and we'll see as we keep going in verse 19, this is people who at one time were part of the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. He goes on a little bit later and we'll talk about the reason they did, and it really was bad theology. But he talks about this idea of false teachers. Now, John pulls no punches when he talks about this idea of false teachers. What does he say that this idea, that, that, that these people truly are? Was it just a, a, little, a little thing that there was some theology that was really off? No. He says that they are literally against who? Jesus. Now, there's a lot of things in my life that I'm against, but I can tell you if there is one thing that I don't want to be against, it's Jesus. Right? I'm against sweet potatoes. Don't want to be against Jesus. Don't be against Jesus. So, when you think about this idea of Antichrist, I want to touch base on this real quick because he uses two things here. Verse 18, he says, As you have heard, Antichrist is coming. That is singular. The other times that he uses it, what tense do you think it is? Plural, right? Plural. You get over to um, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. It is singular, but obviously he's using it in a much larger context because he's talking about the spirit of these people. So four times that John uses this word, 
The people are here. There is only one that's coming, and it's this very first time. I do think that these antichrists, based on what he says here and in some other places, are kind of symbolic of an, probably an end times figure, this antichrist. I said that word is only used by five times in the Bible. It is. Um, Revelation 13, I think, refers to the same person as a beast. You have Jesus that refers to probably the same person as a false teacher or a false prophet. So while the word is only used, I think the idea is a little bit bigger. So this teaching to them, it says, as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. It's something that's known. And now John says, look, if people aren't on board with Jesus, who were they symbolic of? The Antichrist. Friends, hopefully that's not something that is ever truly said of us by God. Right? By God. Jesus taught that false prophets were coming, Matthew 24. I, I, you can go there if you want. He's talking again about, uh, it's in his Olivet Discourse. Let me get here. Don't usually use this thing. Matthew chapter 24. Uh, let's see here, verse, I wrote this down because I wasn't going to remember it. Verse 11, uh, he says, Many false prophets will arise. They will lead many astray. Verse 24, for false Christs, false prophets will arise. They will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Uh, I mean, you know, he talks about how as the age is coming to a close, all this stuff's going to happen to where Jesus predicts, hey, there's going to be false teachers. There's going to be false prophets that come. In Jesus' time, there was a lot of that. There were people that were claiming they were the Messiah. There were people that had followings. Now, usually their following did something. It usually led to war, and they were trying to overthrow Rome, which is partly why I think you see so many people that get mad at Jesus, because what does he not do? He doesn't try to overthrow Rome. When Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus to his death... Why does Judas truly do that? And I think it's, when you look at both what Iscariot kind of refers to and some of these things, I think Judas is very disenfranchised with the fact that, hey, I've been following this Jesus guy, and he's not overthrowing Rome, which is what I want him to do. To the point where he gets disillusioned enough to where he is willing to literally sell out Jesus, sell out the Savior. False teachers are coming. They are promoting false doctrine. Why did these people leave the church? Well, what does he say? They left the church because they went out from us because they never were truly part of us. These people probably had leadership roles in the church. We'll see later that they're actually enticing the true believers to follow them. And they're not going because they know what truth is. But they had leadership roles. They had followings. What they said sounded really good. Usually, how does Satan package a lie? He packages a lie with what? An element of truth. Right? I mean, there's certain things where when you make fun of... As kids, when you make fun of somebody, right? What do you go after? Do you go after something that is just absolutely ridiculous? Like, if I were to make fun of, I don't know, whatever. If I were to make fun of somebody that, that weighs 100 pounds for being fat, is that really going to hurt them? No, because why? There's no hint of truth there. Now, if you're going to make fun of me for being fat, it probably would hurt a little bit more than if I was 100 pounds because there's an element of truth. 
right? That's what we do. We, we take some of those elements of truth, and that's what Satan does. He takes certain aspects of truth and then packages them with lies. He's been doing this since the day he first fell and will not stop. And so these people, they looked really good for a while on the outside, but it was evident of where their heart really was because of what? Of their belief, of their doctrine. And we'll get to that in just a second. So live in the truth because false teachers are coming slash they have already come. Number three. Let's look down at the next uh, verses. Verse 20, he says that these believers who have not fallen away, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Uh, you get down to, let's go down to verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true, there is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. The third point, live in truth, because as believers, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, you have been given something, and it is the Holy Spirit. You have been anointed with the Holy Spirit, is the word there. As we look at this anointing, there's all kinds of different ideas about there, out there about as to the anointing. When does it happen? How do you get it? Do you get it more than once? Well, a couple things that I think are very interesting about that. Just one thing real quick. Look at verse 27. The anointing that you receive from him, the Holy Spirit, what is the next word? Abides in you. Verse 27 there. It abides. It remains or it lives in you. If you are truly saved... At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, and He's there. He stays. Right? He abides. He remains. Um, I think there's times where we probably, probably yield to Him more, might see more, of, more uh, of His empowering as we do that, but truly, He is there. So what does He say about this? You have been given this Holy Spirit. And because of that, he's teaching us. The Holy Spirit, if you are saved, is inside of you, revealing to you what truth is. That is why, as you hear things, you're like, ah, there's something about that that just does not sound quite right. Um, there have been people over the years that for a while had big followings within Christianity that, you know, you hear something just like, there is something that is not right about that. And then as time goes on, it's revealed, yeah, okay, now today they're not even part of Christianity or whatever. They've kind of turned their back on it. But you're like, there's something, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look at what he is saying here, and, and, and one thing that I think sometimes is easy to do is be like, well, see, it says, hey, there's nothing, nothing, I don't need to be taught anything. Holy Spirit reveals everything to me, Right? Well, if we look at the context, we'll see in just in a minute what he's actually talking about, because that's not what he's actually truly saying, as we might quick first read that. He's actually talking about the context there. But the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a whole lot of stuff today. Have you ever heard somebody say, the Holy Spirit told me to do whatever, and X, Y, Z that they're saying is actually sin? I've heard that. I guarantee you that's not what the Holy Spirit's actually telling you to do. So the question that we sometimes have is, how do I know... If the Holy Spirit is actually telling me to do something, or if maybe it's the pizza I had last night. 
How do I know? I think a really good principle is going to be, does what you believe the Holy Spirit is telling you to do agree with the Bible? He is never going to lead you in a place that is in disagreement from the Bible. Um, I am, in some ways, kind of a nerd. I really like reading about certain things in church history. Uh, I find that to be kind of fun and fascinating. Uh, and so there was a book I read some years ago, just because I wanted to, 400 pages, and it went through some different um, groups throughout really the Reformation era. And what was fascinating to me, I got about three quarters of the way through and I realized very quickly, hey, there's a really interesting pattern emerging. All of the groups that relied on the Holy Spirit and did away with the Bible, guess what happened to them? Every single one of them ended up where? Huge air. Some of them started wars. Some of them did all those other things. The ones who emphasized the Holy Spirit along with the Bible, guess what? Almost all of those ended up a place that would not be air. So I think that's where the, the, the reality, kind of, kind of that rubber can meet the road. The Holy Spirit is in us, but a lot of times we blame Him for stuff that's really not Him. Because we're also battling what? The flesh. Our sin nature. And sometimes we yield to that. You know, and sometimes we want certain things that maybe we try to spiritualize a little bit more than we should. So the Holy Spirit is never going to lead you to sin. He's never going to lead you to anything that's going to disagree with the Bible. So all that to say, third point, live in truth because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The Holy Spirit does illuminate. As you read the Bible, He's teaching you. He's illuminating all of those different things. And then the last point, starting in verse 20, live in truth because correct doctrine or belief matters. In fact, it is crucial. Let's read verses 20 through 26. But you, or 21, uh, I'll read 21 up. But you've been anointed with the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is in the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise He has made to you. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. All right. So a couple different things. Like I said, verse 20, context is key. You've been anointed by the Holy One. You have all knowledge. Well, what is the knowledge that he's talking about? And it's what he's talking about in verses 21 through 26. The knowledge of who Jesus is. If what he is saying is you have all knowledge and don't need to be taught, then why in the world is John writing the letter in the first place? Wouldn't that be redundant? Yes. But what he is saying is, hey, you know the truth about who Jesus actually is. Live in that truth. Live in that truth. They know it. There is no lie in the truth. But who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now, wrapped up in that word is a lot of stuff. What he is saying is some crucial teaching about the nature of Jesus that is vital for belief. 
You see, we can't create a Jesus who we want. We actually need to worship the Jesus who is. We try to do that with God sometimes too. We create a God who we want rather than worshiping the God who has been revealed. Well, at that point, who are we actually worshiping? We're not worshiping God. We want God to kind of be like, as I've heard described, the cosmic vending machine. Right? We like the vending machine because you put in your dollar. Actually, some I see today are even super high tech. They have the credit card swipe, which is really smart because I don't usually carry cash. Perfect, right? You put the dollar in and then out of all the things in that, can in that vending machine, you get to choose what you want. B7, which I always thought sounded a lot like you're playing Battleship, but that's besides the point. Um, and in that vending machine, you get what you want. And that's kind of what we want. Well, I like God as this, this, and this, but I don't really like this, this, and this, so I'm going to create a God that's... No. Friends, we don't get to do that. Right? We, I like the God that's loving, but the God that's like just, the God the Bible feels to be wrathful at times, I don't like him. No. <laughs> we don't get to do that. And really, it's those other attributes we don't like which actually enhance the ones that we do. Jesus is the Christ. Well, what is really, in a sense, the heresy that these people are denying? And there's a couple things, and we see a little bit later in the letter, but they are denying either that Jesus was fully God or fully man. Seems here probably that they were denying he was fully man. Throughout history, Jesus being fully God is the one that's been denied more. The idea of Christ is he is the Messiah. He is the one come God in the flesh, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, that's kind of a hard concept. And I think it's one of the reasons we're kind of like, ah, that's kind of weird. I don't know if I want to, don't know if I like that. But if we don't believe that, we're not believing in the Jesus of who? The Bible. Or Jesus of what? The Bible. So they are denying that. So Jesus is the Christ. Either not fully God, not fully man. The other part with that seems to be laid in the letter. Denying the fact that his death was either necessary, um, that it took our place, vicarious, uh, and some of these things. And because of that, because they denied these things, what does John say about them? I mean, does he pull punches? What words do he use? Antichrist. In fact, they were against Jesus. They talked a good game, but they were against Jesus. These people know the truth, but John is writing to reinforce it. Writing to reinforce it. Right? Anybody who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he's fully God, fully man, whatever, John makes very clear, God through that, Antichrist. And what he is saying, what God is telling us here is, my friends, we can't be true believers in Jesus unless we believe in Jesus as he describes himself through the Bible. Look at verse 23. Those who acknowledge Jesus, Jesus of the Bible, reveal that they do what? They reveal they know God. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
And then you get down to verse 24. Remember the message of the gospel you first heard is kind of what he says here. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. This is the exact same argument Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. Kind of an amazing chapter where he goes through kind of the core doctrine of the gospel. The idea that, my friends, as much as we hate this idea, all of us are sinners. All of us. We have sinned. You have chosen to sin time and time and time and time again. We have sinned in small ways. We've sinned in big ways. Some of us probably have done things that others would look at and be like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. I've never done that. And right there you've sinned with pride. Just like I have hundreds of times. And then when we get to Jesus, when he talks about sin, he talks about things like adultery and murder. And he doesn't just go after the action. He goes after the heart. Those of you who have hated your brother, it's akin to murder. Now, he's not saying go out and commit murder. It's not what he's saying. It's the same. But what he's saying is in God's economy, it is. Adultery. He who's looked on a woman to lust has committed adultery. And all of a sudden, when we start thinking about that, we realize I am not as good as I thought I am. Or as I think I am. Or as I want to think I am. All of those little white lies that we have told. I like the, uh, I like the Geico commercial where they have the Pinocchio guy. <laughs> I like that. Because a lot of those little lies that he tells... We think they're little lies. You know, I love when he's sitting in a seminar like this and he's talking about, you have potential. And his nose just goes big after this one guy and the guy feels terrible. right? He, or he tells the, tells the cop, oh, I didn't see the sign. The nose goes out. How many of us have ever done something like that? I didn't know. I didn't know what the speed limit was, officer. You absolutely know the speed limit on I-15 is 70. right? Whatever. And I think in some ways that can reveal to us who, are, who we really are. And what does God say about sin? Is it a big deal or is it a small deal? Well, we like to think of it as a small deal. But what does God say about our sin? In fact, it is a huge deal. And it creates a chasm that is impossible for us to create or for us to, to, to navigate. If we were to go to the Grand Canyon and I were to get the world's longest long jumper, whoever that was. I remember when I was a kid, it was Carl Lewis. I have no idea who it is now. Right? But, I mean, that dude can jump forever. But he jumps through the Grand Canyon, what's going to happen? He's just going to fall further down because he jumped further out. He's not making it across. I mean, that's the chasm that we have between us and God. And yet, what, did, what does the Bible say that Jesus did? Through Jesus coming, he was able to live the perfect life that God demanded. He never sinned. Something I can't even comprehend. And then not only did he not sin, but the Bible says that he took our sins and he put them on his shoulders on that cross. To where Colossians talks about on that cross, there's a piece of paper that has your name. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your name, all of your sins, and in red written across it is the words paid in full in blood, nailed to the cross. What did Jesus do? He took the punishment for your sins on the cross. The punishment that you could never do enough to make up for. And then he rose again, conquering death. The Bible talks about what? That the wages of our sin is death. The payment for our sin is separation from God. But the gift of God, the grace of God, is eternal life. And what makes biblical Christianity different from you know, anything else in the world, really, is the idea that grace 
It can't be earned. It's unmerited favor. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's grace. Nothing. If you did, it wouldn't be grace. If I could earn a Christmas present, it's not really a present. God's grace. It doesn't mean that we just go out and sin and do all those things that sometimes we get accused of, right? But really what it means is it gives us the opportunity to not. Because now the Holy Spirit's living inside of us. He's guiding us. He's revealing truth to us. That idea of the gospel is the most important thing ever. It is what Bible says determines eternity. Not how good I am. Not what I do. Not whatever else. But what have I done with Jesus? What have I believed about Jesus? So my friends, if you're here this morning, you're like, well, that's kind of new to me, Phil. I don't know. I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to sit down and talk with you. Go through what the Bible actually says uh, about it in even more detail if you want. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a great place that just reveals, hey, we were dead in our sins, but God, in His rich mercy, saved us, gave us that opportunity. Um, love to sit down with you uh, if you have any questions about that, because there is nothing that is more important. Remember the message of the gospel that you first heard. Why is that important? Because there's a whole lot of other messages that come at us. Remember the truth. Remember the truth. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. And then he gives us kind of a very positive uh, thing here. The positive is, if you remain, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If, you, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, remains in you, you live in it. You too will abide in the Son and the Father. This is the promise He's made to us. And what is it? Eternal life. So part of the way that John can say in John chapter 5, verse 13, hey, I write these things to you so that you may know you have eternal life. One of them He just gives us right here. And what is it? Remain believing the truth about Jesus. There's an idea in there. It's kind of the idea of all true believers will persevere to the end. Right? Sometimes, you know, you have people that look really good for a while, kind of like these false teachers did. But after a little while, they're like, yeah, yeah, I don't really actually believe. What does the Bible say about that? And there's a really, really good chance they never actually truly were believers in the first place. They never put their faith and their trust in Jesus alone, truly. So he says, look, if you abide, if you remain, you will have eternal life. Is that an arrogant statement? Well, it's the reality. It's truth. So I don't think it's arrogant in that sense. It's arrogant maybe in the sense of how could anybody know? But God is telling us you can know. You can know. Verse 25, But the anointing you have received from him abides in you. Again, you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true. It's no lie. Just as it taught you, abide in Him. Abide in Him. My friends, what are we abiding in? What are we living in? What is our reality? What is our, what is our life about? I mean, if we were, heaven forbid, to pass away today, if we were to die today, what would be said about you at your funeral? 
Hopefully people would show up, right? But what would be said about you? Oh, Phil's a really nice guy. I mean, that's good. That's not really what I, what I want said about me, right? He likes to have fun. I do, but that's not really what I want to say about me. More than anything, I want to hear he loved God. Desired that that would be, desire to be known. What is your life about? Someday when we stand before God in eternity, everything is stripped away, right? All the stuff that most people live for, your money, what good does it do you? None. I mean, truly, at the moment of death, what good does your money do you? None. It's good for your descendants, probably. Uh, and if some of you have someone want to adopt, I'm always looking for that. But, um, but, truly, it does us no good. Even all the quote-unquote good works that we could do, if they're not done for the right reasons, if they're not done in the name of Jesus, they don't matter. All the toys, all the this and that. You know, we were driving down the freeway yesterday and there's big billboards everywhere for the Outdoor Show Expo. And you know what? There is nothing wrong with boats, with four-wheelers, none of it. But how many people do we know, our friends, our neighbors, that live for that stuff? They work so they can get away on the weekends every weekend and go have a good time. I love camping. I really enjoy fishing. I mostly enjoy catching, which doesn't happen here as much as I would like to think it does. Um, because when you catch, there's nothing better than eating a nice fish that you've grilled over the fire um, that was just in the water two hours ago. You know it's fresh, right? The eyes aren't even cloudy. Um, but uh, nothing wrong with that. But is that what our life is about? Brown was talking last week about, hey, what does our bank account say? What does your tax return say? Those are good things to look at. What, what is some of that there? And, and also, not just that, what is the motivation? Because we could be doing some of these things, but if it's just to appease ourselves, to whatever, because we're expected to, what? no. I, you know, I think the Bible is pretty clear about some of that stuff, but I mean, I would, quite honestly, somebody, I would much rather somebody never give than give with the wrong spirit. Or because compulsion, forget it no purpose in that right god can provide god is a great provider in that sense but what is our life about what is our life about are you living in the truth are you living in the truth because the end is near do you believe jesus could come back today are you living like it are you living in the truth because the holy spirit is illuminating you ever ask him to open your eyes to something you don't know what to do god i don't really know Reveal to me your will. Again, it's never going to lead you apart from what truth is, from what the Bible reveals. But that's what the Holy Spirit's for. He will do that. He will help you to understand. And then truly, are you living in the truth of who Jesus is? Have you ever put your faith and trust in Jesus alone? My friends, at the end of the day, that is all that matters. It's not what Phil thinks of me or what anybody else thinks of me. Not what my parents think of me. Not what my friends think. It's what does, who does God know me to be? The Bible talks about the idea that at the end of, the, end, of, end of time, when God is doing judgment and he is going through, there are people, it says, that what? We did great miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all this stuff. 
And what does he say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Because it's not the stuff, it's the heart. It's the heart. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, love to talk to you today about that. That is the truth. That is the truth. And that is what John is going for here. These false teachers that have come in, that have done all this stuff, they're leading people away from who Jesus is. And John says, not a chance. In fact, my friends, it's not just a little deal. It's a huge deal. And you are against Jesus. Don't be against Jesus. Let's pray.